0: Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. Death happens in medical settings for all kinds of reasons. However, when a death is unexpected, it can leave loved ones grieving and investigators wondering whether it was a case of medical misconduct or medical murder. When investigators decide to bring a case to trial, they often rely on statistics to help them make their argument. The Royal Statistical Society released a report last year on stats in such cases and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Bill Thompson, Thompson's Professor Emeritus of Criminology, Law, and Society, Psychology, and Social Behavior at the UCI School of Social Ecology. He's interested in human factors associated with forensic science evidence, including contextual and cognitive bias in forensic analysis, and the communication of scientific findings to lawyers and juries. He's written about strengths and limitations of various types of forensic evidence, particularly DNA evidence, and about the ability of lay juries to evaluate evidence. Thompson was one of the co-authors of that 2022 Royal Statistical Society report on statistics and medical misconduct and murder cases. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Happy to be with you. Yeah, Bill, thanks, thanks again for, for jumping on with us today. I, I'm curious, what led the, the Royal Stat Society to th- say, we need to put together a panel and and really dive into this
2: well as i understand it the royal statistical society had been um they've been approached a number of times over the years by individuals who were concerned about the use or misuse of statistical evidence in these cases of medical alleged medical misconduct you know cases where say a nurse was accused of killing a number of patients and so on those cases often turn on statistical Evidence or statistics play a prominent role, and there had been a number of allegations about misuse of statistics in such cases that found their way to the Royal Statistical Society. So I think this was a an issue that the society had been thinking about looking into. The idea of of preparing a report came out of a there's a statistics and law committee of the Royal Statistical Society, which I happened to be uh, on at the time this issue came up, and and uh, 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 also on the committee at the time was uh, Richard Gill who's a uh, statistician and physicist at Leiden University who had uh, had some involvement in, in a prominent European case involving a nurse who was convicted of serial murder but then the case was re-examined and she was later exonerated. Um, so, so Gill who had a lot of expertise was there Um, And um, uh, another member of the committee was Julia Mortera from University of Rome, who had had some involvement in an Italian case involving a nurse named Daniela Poglia, who had also been accused and convicted of um, serial murder, but under circumstances that raised a lot of concerns about misuse of statistical evidence. And so, so there were some people with expertise there, there, and then there were some people like myself who had never thought about the issue. There were some, you know, lawyers and social science types like myself. Uh, There was a Scottish lawyer and there were some uh, very serious well-trained statisticians like Peter Green uh, from um, Bristol University. So there, the, we had, we had the expertise and uh, there was we decided to attempt to put together a report on it. Uh, you know, partly, I think it's just because it was fascinating to us. And there was, there's, so much, there's so much to say about these cases, and we thought it would be useful to pull it all together in a report that might be useful to um, people who are involved in doing criminal investigations in these cases, like prosecutors and police and hospital officials. Uh, even defense lawyers, I mean, what, do, what do they need to know to uh, to think about these cases sensibly? So we we decided to see if we could pull together a report, and we got it to the point where it could then be reviewed by the Royal Statistical Society and, and go through their process to adopt it as an official uh, publication.
0: So what kinds of stats are we talking about?
2: Well, um, it, it, the stats come up in various ways, but one of the most prominent ones is simply a, a p-value. For, uh, for looking at the quote statistical significance of some, um, often of a relative risk ratio. So what will happen is that it will be observed that uh, an unusual number of patients may have died. You know? So in the, in the neonatal intensive care or they always have certain deaths, but during a particular period, maybe the rate of deaths goes up and everybody's very concerned in what's happened. And then it it's noticed that Nurse Jones was always on duty or seemingly was always on duty uh when these deaths occurred and and maybe there are other reasons to think nurse jones may be, you know you know she there was the, the the gothic costume she wears and the the fact that she i guess the, the italian nurse i guess at one point dressed as the angel of death as a halloween costume and this caused oh. concern but there there may be other issues issues of concern and and everybody you know and it's there, there. I think some of these cases do appear to have certain elements of scapegoating to them. It's almost, it's almost like a witch hunt, right? So if things are going terribly wrong, and well, maybe it's witches who are responsible. And so I think, I think that there's that, there's that kind of dynamic here. Although, having said that, I also want to say that um, uh, it's, uh, it's probably not good to compare these entirely to witch hunts because we're, we're pretty sure that there weren't actual witches. Uh, and we're pretty sure that there are actual serial killers out there who, who, in uh, medical guys, who, you know, doctors and nurses who have, for reasons that are often inexplicable, decided to kill people. So it's not, you know, there, so there's a, there, there, is a, there are actual cases where this happens and we need to distinguish them from cases where coincidence or other factors may have created the appearance of guilt in somebody innocent. And it's not, an easy, it's not an easy challenge.
1: You know, it's, it's, as you're describing this, I find myself thinking a lot about disease clusters. You know, yes. you, there's, there's small town, where there's a lot of, lot of cases of a certain type of cancer. And oh, by the way, there just happens to be a plant in the community. And it may or may not be associated, but, but it's often a, a directly attributed to it.
2: Right. And, and um, yeah, no, I think that's exactly the analogy that we were started with, you know, and when you're when you statisticians are often brought in and asked, um, if these deaths are occurring randomly at, at, at you know, at the rate at which we think death normally would occur, what's the probability that by chance we would have a cluster of so many uh, uh, during the periods when Nurse Jones is on duty, you know, and, and that it's possible to calculate a p-value and often the probability looks extremely, exceptionally low. Um, and um, then, you know, that then becomes uh, what appears to be a very solid scientifically based piece of evidence strongly supporting guilt. Um, but, you know, but it can be misleading in so many different ways. Um, some of it is, some of it is that people don't, um, Understand what a p-value means. So, so there's a lot of a lot of the case when we looked at the evidence and how it came in and how the lawyers argued it. There are a lot of difficulties with um, uh, fallacious interpretations of p-values, and particularly transposing of the conditional probability. You know, that's, mm-hmm. a p-value, as you know, is is, is is says something about the the conditional probability of getting certain ev- evidence, certain evidentiary results under a hypothesis. Right, but so often when that's discussed in court, it's it's transposed into the probability of the hypothesis being true or not true, conditioned on the evidence, which is, is clearly fallacious. But but lawyers and judges and jurors don't always it's not always easy to see the fallacy. And and so it's easy for them to go from well, there's you know, from a statistic like there's only one chance in 10, billion, 10 million that we would see so many deaths on Nurse Jones' watch by chance to to saying well there's only one chance in 10 million that this many deaths occurred by chance um which is what which is the very argument that was often made problematic and so partly it's that it's partly a misinterpretation of statistics and partly the the cluster idea also that you know maybe there's like only one chance in 10 million suppose we've com- computed that correctly we may not have as far as i can go on in a minute but Assuming we've compute, computed that correctly, there's one chance in 10 million for any particular nurse to have that many deaths at a particular time. But, but you know, how many nurses are there in the world, right? You know, there might, there might be, you know, there probably are, are, you know, there are easily 10 million nurses probably in the world somewhere. And so even if it's an extremely rare thing for that cluster of deaths to occur for any particular nurse, it's quite probable that somewhere, sometime, there's going to be a nurse that has that kind of cluster occur, and and so how do we how do we then distinguish the nurse who's really killing people from the nurse who's just been implicated by coincidence? And and again, as as we say, as, uh, I think that's the, what prompted the report was the sense well this is not easy, and it's easy that people get what well, can easily be confused about these numbers. And therefore, we need to try to lay this all out for them in a in a sensible way. So we we made the attempt, and, and I hope it I hope it has some, <laughs> I hope it has some benefits. I hope people will actually read it who need to read it.
0: In the report, you have these case studies where you walk through how stats played out in particular cases. Do you want to walk us through one of those to kind of explain sort of the case, what was at stake, and sort of how stats were used?
2: Or uh, I think the I guess the, the kind of prototypical case is this case of, uh, of a woman known as uh, Lucia, whose name was Lucia de Bercht. They, they called her Lucia, Lucia de B. Uh, but she was a, a Dutch uh, pediatric nurse. And um, she worked in a hospital. And uh, it's kind of it's kind of the typical case, because she, she worked in a hospital and an unusual number of deaths were occurring. Um, there, uh, you know, apparently there were other reasons that Lucia, Lucia, although there was evidence that she actually was quite a good nurse, I mean, she was particularly energetic, she worked long shifts, she worked extra shifts and things like that, which might be part of the reason that an unusual number of deaths were occurring on her on her shifts is because she was doing a lot of extra shifts and she was doing shifts at the, uh, you know, she was doing shifts at the tough times and taking on the tougher cases and so on. But Um, uh, but an unusual number of deaths occurred. Um, the hospital was uh, under a lot of pressure about this. This was raised a lot of concerns about the management of the hospital and the managers, I think may, you know, there's, there's some suggestion that they may have found it easier to blame the, uh, the unusual number of deaths on, on, um, a particular individual than to acknowledge that maybe they were there there were some procedural changes in how they were handling high risk cases how they were handling genetic defects and so on that that you know that, that may have you know so there there may there may have been some management decisions that that uh, contributed to the increasing death rate that death rate that you know that were uh, more easily that it, it may have been more easy to blame it on an individual than to acknowledge a systemic uh, issue, but in any event, she was uh, she was tried and convicted in Dutch courts twice, and and um, a prominent part of her prosecution was this computation of p-values, the the uh, the very low probability of seeing this many deaths by chance. But you know, it turned out when when the case was eventually the case eventually attracted the attention of some academics, and particularly uh, Richard Gill, uh, who, you know, almost by happenstance, they were drawn into the case by people that they knew who happened to be peripherally involved and thought maybe Lucio was getting railroaded and said, you know, you're a statistician, look at what the statisticians were saying when they testified. You know, another issue in Lucio de Burke is that the people who testified to the statistics were I would say they were not well-trained statisticians. They were not professional statisticians, not academic statisticians. They were, you know, medical doctors or medical people who had maybe had some statistics course courses, but uh, perhaps were not as sophisticated about uses of statistics as they could have been. But they were basically, you know, computing p-values in ways that um, were. Um, Reflected biases that, uh, and and we're using them, drawing conclusions from them that that were somewhat fallacious. And when that became, you know, when when academics like Richard Gill wrote articles pointing this out, and this was re-examined by the court, and they asked, well, what else do we have other than these botched statistics? Uh, the Dutch courts ultimately decided that there was not enough. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were there were, you know, when you go when you go looking for things, you know, uh, you can often find some things that look a little incriminating, you know, so Lucia was, she did tarot card readings. And so, you know, in tarot cards, there's cards of deaths and so on. So apparently, she had been doing some tarot card readings with some of her patients. And there, you know, so there's some suspicious things that may have arisen from her, her um, fascination with occultic things. And uh, there was a, there was a diary that was seized during the investigation in which she uh, talked rather ambiguously about having a, having compulsions or dark urges or something like that. But, you know, though, but you know I don't think it was clear that it, her dark urges were about murdering people as opposed to some other dark thing she might have done. But uh, but I mean I think you know you can imagine that um, any of us, if if our lives were examined closely enough, might have some things that might suggest that we could be could be secret killers and so they found there were a few of those things but they didn't amount to much so ultimately Lucia was exonerated and uh of course the courts declared that she had been falsely convicted and that became kind of a prototypic case um, um there you know there there have been many others and these cases I have to say they're they appear to be quite rare but they're not so rare that we don't see them regularly and we see them in many many different countries as i mentioned, you know there's there're there Italian cases there's the Dutch case we've had several in the United States several in Britain and you know, and once in a while there are cases where uh, that involve serial killer medical personnel who who where the evidence makes it look like they're pretty darn guilty like this case of Harold Shipman that we we talk in the report about the Harold Shipman case in Britain, where where um, this doctor who was treated elderly patients and many of them ended up dying unexpectedly, and um, which probably should have raised suspicions earlier than it did, um, particularly when it later turned out that that. Uh, um he apparently had been involved in uh, altering their wills to designate him as a beneficiary <laughs> <laughs> and and uh you yeah, know there was other evidence that he was he was a victim. so apparently and there there was another german case where, where there was a doctor who was killing many people who uh i mean these are these are inexplicable cases and so as i say it's not that this is not a witch hunt where where we're looking for a non-existent category of crime but it's a very unusual, rare uh, kind of crime that needs to be, that's difficult to distinguish from, you know, from innocence uh, and coincidence.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Bill Thompson about a Royal Statistical Society report on stats and medical murder cases. It's
1: its interesting, as you've been talking about some of these cases, that that when the, it's only statistical argument of, of rarity or unusualness of observation, that, that there's more to the story. I mean, you talked about, like, the hospital having slightly different uh, changes in processes that might be associated with, with greater mortality. You mentioned that in the Shipman case that there was these this other evidence that surfaced. It seemed that this this body of evidence is a critical part of telling and investigating a story like this, not just just relying on unusualness of the result. And so it's it seems like that there's there's like by, by definition, the, the, you will have people that that have opportunity and possibly means. But but how are the, how is motive established in some of these cases? You, you gave us one with shipment talking about the wills being modified. But but how does that play out in understanding whether something like this is happening?
2: Well, the the motive is often very difficult to understand, and and um, I mean often what, often the alleged motive is something like uh, trying to gain attention, uh, mm. there was a, or or trying to um, trying to uh, put uh, patients into a dangerous medical situation so that this that this person could be the hero who saves them. But maybe you know maybe it doesn't quite work out all the time. So so uh, creating a medical crisis and then being the hero that solves it and that kind of so the, those are the alleged motives and you know I, I, there's this 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 in fact you know could well motivate some people to do to, to do terrible things to get uh, to get attention um, you know and often often the uh, the people who have been accused in some of these cases. Uh, are um are seen to be sort of strivers people who are trying to get ahead you know t- people who are trying to look outstanding relative to their colleagues and so so sometimes you know the allegation is they're you know they're trying to cheat to to look heroic uh but in fact it may be that they actually are sincere strivers and they just you know they take on the toughest cases and they they work hardest and they stay They stay, they they arrive before and leave after their normal shifts and, and see, you know, they stick around when that, when a patient is on the edge of death, they stick around to to try to everything, you know, that kind of, so, so these are, these are tough cases. And then I should also mention the, I mean, what part of these cases that I found particularly fascinating as a psychologist is that there's a lot of opportunities for, um, contextual and other kinds of cognitive biases to creep into the cases in ways that affect the statistics, right? So so and I think in some ways that's the the strongest part of this report is that we look at investigative procedures and how the investigative procedures can lead to biases and how those biases then can then distort the statistics to create to to make something that's that's innocent look guilty or potentially can. So it's, it's things like when we're trying to compute statistics on uh, the probability of getting so many suspicious deaths, how do we determine what's a suspicious death? Uh. And how do we determine that this suspicious death occurred while while a particular person was on duty, like when do we say their duty starts or not duty? And suppose you know somebody who died right after after they went off duty was that while they were on duty? I mean, so there's a lot of ambiguity about this about the interpretations and and what we were seeing when we looked closely at the evidence in these cases, what we were seeing is what appeared to be evidence of a profound bias in the way that the cases were classified to start with. so, mm-hmm. So while deciding whether the, the death of this particular infant, was this a suspicious death or is this a typical death that we don't need to be concerned about? Well, if the person making that determination knows that the person died while the alleged serial killer was in attendance, that might influence their judgment. In fact, I suspect, you know, we, we, I think there's, we reviewed uh, in the report a lot of evidence from psychological studies and studies in forensic science suggesting that these kind of, this kind of contextual factor, like facts that might lead an investigator to suspect a particular individual can change the way that they classify and interpret the evidence mm. so you're more likely to say that that the that the that this was a suspicious death if if it was if it was uh, while the alleged serial killer was along, around or you're more likely to say it was while while he or she was on duty even though it occurred a little afterwards but maybe it just took a while to detect the death or maybe uh, maybe it occurred in, a, in an adjacent ward, not where they were working, but maybe if you investigated, you could find that somebody saw them walk by, so maybe, you know, you could, you can maybe, so there are ways of uh, where the, the boundaries between, you know, how you classify the cases have sort, of, have sort of fuzzy boundaries. And if you're defining the boundaries in a way that's goal-directed toward the person who's already accused, then you can build, you can build a mountain of evidence out of, out of randomness and so and so part of what's really nice about the rss report i think and this is uh peter green uh who's one of our uh one of our writers uh helped helped come up with these but we came we came up with some really uh, kind of nice i guess toy examples to show how you could take uh data that was not statistically significant and and make it appear to be statistically significant by introducing minor biases in the investigation process. Mm. And so, so showing how that can happen, realizing that can happen, that then tells you, well, if we really want to do these investigations, well, we have to take steps to try to avoid having that happen. And so we have some discussion in the report about how to do that. That is how to improve investigative procedures to reduce biases uh, and thereby improve the quality and the trustworthiness of the statistics that emerge from the analyses.
1: So, so you had about eight recommendations that came out of this report, and and you're hinting at least one of them when you start talking about masking of kind of the experts to the to some of the conditions when data is collected. Yeah. Could you, could you talk about some of the other recommendations that were part of the report? Um Well, I think there are quite a few. Um, The
2: masking was in it is, I think, from my perspective, that's probably one of the most important ones. It's an investigation. The other investigations, are the other recommendations are to the experts need to be mindful about what p-values mean and what they don't mean. So you need to avoid misinterpretation of the p-values. Professional statisticians should be uh, involved in these cases. So because the statistical issues can be kind of subtle, you know, having somebody with an undergraduate Course in statistics, but computing your your uh, your p-values is probably not a good idea. So having a statistician. So um, the it's it's really important that those doing the investigations uh, that those involve medical and other medical and professionals and other experts who are likely to be aware of the full range of other variables that might affect uh, the, the rates of death. So particu- you know, so so often what and one of the factors that's been important in some of these cases is that individuals get blamed for deaths that turn out later to be caused by other factors. There was a Canadian case, for example, where a number of of uh, infants were dying. And there were there was an investigation of a particular nurse who was thought to be involved. But later it turned out it was not, it was the um, the silicone silicone tubes that were used for intubation or something were causing allergic grants. So there's un, an unexpected change. There was a, a, a British case where the surgeon deaths corresponded to the hiring of a new nurse uh, who came under suspicion. but it also corresponded to a change in the supplier of infant formula and it turned to be turned out to be uh, some contaminated infant formula that was causing uh, the death. So, so knowing what those other factors could be, and having people independent of the hospital administration investigating those factors. So often, these these investigations are initiated by hospital administrators who might have their own dirty laundry to hide, right? And so, so or uh, uh, so it's it's good to have it's good to bring in independent investigators.
0: Um, I, I am curious, Bill, what the response has been to the report since it's been out. You know.
2: Uh, I've heard uh, good responses from academics who have read it. Uh, so the the academic response has been nice job summarizing a whole bunch of stuff, you know. So they, <laughs> I think we got we've gotten kudos from our academic colleagues for like being able to pull together a lot of disparate things into a nice package. We have not gotten a lot of good feedback from lawyers. I mean. I should mention, there's a case going on in, in uh, Britain right now uh, involving a nurse named uh, Lucy Letby, who's being uh, uh, prosecuted for um, serial homicide of infants. She was in a, an, an infant care nurse in uh, National Health Service Hospital in Britain. And the uh, when that case came up, uh, members of our committee sent copies of the report to both Prosecutors, prosecution and defense sides, saying, you know, you should. We understand you're dealing with one of these cases. You should, you should uh, look at our report. And the response that came back is, oh, we're, you know, we don't need to be concerned with that because we're not presenting any statistics. You know, in our case, our case does not depend on statistics. The problem is that all they might not have any explicit statistics. They might not have anybody presenting p-values. But they are dealing with these same issues of the unusual number of deaths the unexpected numbers and so on and how how whether deaths are classified as suspicious or not so so the um i think lawyers have this odd idea that you're not you're not talking you're not thinking about they're dealing with statistics unless they're actual numbers and and what they don't seem to understand is a lot of what. A lot of what statisticians bring to the table isn't about the numbers per se, it's about the the logic of inference that goes into drawing conclusions from data, right? And that's what statisticians are really good at. And and that's what they bring to the table. But uh, the lawyers not understanding that say, oh, well, no numbers, no statistics, I don't need to worry, I'm not going to read your report because, you know, we don't have numbers. Oh, oh, you know. Um, dummies. <laughs> we need to, we need to educate them about this. I'm not sh- quite sure how to do that. But, uh, but I suspect that we need to do more outreach between uh, the statistical community and the legal community uh, to bring this this to bring this issue to their attention. Because really, they're they're missing a bet if they are you know, and, uh, and they could well be doing injustice. I mean, I don't I'm I'm not commenting on the details of the Lucy Letby case. I don't know about the details of that case, but but I would bet I would bet that the people who were looking at particular infant deaths and assessing whether they were suspicious or not were not blinded to whether she was involved. I bet you know, and I bet you know, So I bet they did other things that could well have distorted the data that they are uh, interpreting. So anyway, that's. That's my take on it. I think yeah. <laughs> academics academics love it. Lawyers, lawyers uh, haven't, haven't quite realized that they need it.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here today. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories.
2: Thanks, Bill. I was delighted to take part.
0: It's a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media journalism and film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stats and Stories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.